From WNYC in New York, this is On the Media. Brooke Gladstone is away this week. I'm Bob Garfield. The Trump administration's dogged pursuit of all things leaky ramped up last week with Attorney General Jeff Sessions announcing a renewed investigative effort from within his Justice Department. Since January, the department has more than tripled the number of active leak investigations compared to the number pending at the end of the last administration. And while the White House has made no secret of its disgust with the mainstream media, Sessions hinted at a new potentially punitive response to the publishing of unwelcome disclosures. One of the things we are doing is reviewing policies for affecting media subpoenas. We respect the important role that the press plays and will give them respect, but it is not unlimited. Days later, Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein was obliged to at least try to soften his boss's ominous warning. We don't prosecute journalists for doing their jobs. Our goal is to prevent the leaks, uh, and so that's what we're after here. We haven't revised the policy with regard to reporters. Oh, really? Is the president on board with that? The president told Comey he should throw journalists in jail. What is clear is that the administration is determined to plug the leaks that have so embarrassed it from the beginning, and existing law does provide leeway to crack down on journalists in the process. Dana Gold is Director of Education and Strategic Partnerships at the Government Accountability Project. Dana, welcome to OTM. Thank you for having me, Bob. Now, most anonymous sources, the vast majority, are never unmasked. So for the government, often the only way to identify the source of a leak is through the journalists themselves, and they are not necessarily protected. That's right. It's a common misperception that there is a legal protection, like the attorney-client privilege. Like, you know, if I'm talking to a client as an attorney, we have codified protections that are pretty inviolate. I think there's a myth that that exists between a journalist and a source. It's actually more norm than law. Some states have shield laws, but there is no national shield law that says you do not have to reveal your source, whatever oath you may have made to that source to get the information. There have been prosecutions of reporters for passing along classified information. And, you know, you don't have to go to Nixon. The Obama administration took a pretty hard line. Yeah, the Obama administration was actually terrible for whistleblowers and for journalists, at least in the intelligence community context. You know, under the Obama administration, there were more prosecutions of employees under the Espionage Act than in all of the administrations combined. That was true, obviously, in terms of going after and subpoenaing journalists as well. And that was the whole issue with uh, the press and Eric Holder kind of coming to terms about renegotiating and figuring out how to make sure that the interests of the press are protected in light of these ramped-up prosecutions of intelligence whistleblowers. Now, if the Trump administration wished to, it could, in every particular case, in every particular story, if it found that a law has been broken in passing on secrets, it could go to every reporter in, in a jurisdiction where there are no shield laws and say, you know, either give me the information or go to jail and think it over. Right. No, that's right. And, you know, journalists have been phenomenal in kind of making the norm so strong that they 
won't comply with the subpoena and they will sit in jail. I mean, otherwise they're dead in the water as uh, having integrity as a journalist. It's like the threat of prosecution for whistleblowers. It's an incredibly chilling move to make. And the threat of prosecution of journalists, that will have a chilling effect, not just on the journalists, but also on sources willing to talk to journalists. Much of what is now the Russia investigations in both houses of Congress and the FBI hinges on early stories based on anonymous sourcing, based on highly classified intelligence intercepts, uh, the release of which was you know, clearly a breach of the law that may or may not be covered by whistleblower protection. But the administration claims that uh, this kind of reporting puts lives at stake. Is there any evidence that, never mind anyone being killed, but has anyone been put at risk or any military or intelligence operation put at risk because of these revelations? No, not that I know of. And and that's actually why, you know, when Jeff Sessions talked last Friday and, you know, kind of invoked this comment that saying journalists cannot place lives at risk with impunity, you know, that was a really chilling statement. You know, just that rhetoric is wrong and irresponsible. I wonder if, even though it's a Republican majority in both houses, at some point they get fed up with the misdirection and the blaming the messenger and they actually get in the press protection business. Can you even imagine that taking place? Yeah, I, I can, actually. I think that we see this ramped up prosecution. I think that's what you're going to see. You're going to see fighting back of these attacks on the press. You know, the protection of journalists and the role of journalists and the role of whistleblowers are essentially two sides of the same coin. And we have seen all of the whistleblower protection legislation that has been passed has been passed almost unanimously with bipartisan support. I mean, Chuck Grassley is like one of the biggest proponents of whistleblower protection. I mean, it's like the hidden secret of Washington. Like nobody says that employees should not have the right (laughs) to disclose wrongdoing. It's the best mechanism to hold our institutions accountable, our ethical employees with the right to raise concerns free from reprisal. So I see, you know, this whole attack on leakers, the right answer should be not to focus on the leaks, but to create new protections for intelligence community whistleblowers. You know, until that happens, we're going to also need protections of journalists. So I think this is actually a really potentially ripe opportunity to address both of those issues. I think that journalists and whistleblowers are the two backbones of what is holding us together right now. Can you envision two parallel sets of prosecutions going on, one against the inner circle of the Trump campaign and the White House, while simultaneously the administration is lashing out legally at the messengers? Is that what we're looking at? Yeah, I think we're in a race where we're going to see the administration, as long as they are in power, exercise their power to try to control information and chill journalists and, you know, chill their workforce to stop unauthorized leaks or information that they don't want to see out. That's going to continue. At the same time, I think you're absolutely right. You know, we have an impaneled grand jury and we have two congressional investigations ongoing and we could be looking at impeachment. It seems like this literal neck and neck horse race right now. Not neck and neck, actually. I think that right now the Trump administration has more power. But I think your vision is exactly what we might be looking at. Dana, thank you very much. Oh, thank you. This was so great. I really enjoyed talking to you, Bob. 
Dana Gold is Director of Education and Strategic Partnerships at the Government Accountability Project. Coming up, navigating the deportation archipelago. This is on the media. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, Lulu here. Whether we are romping through science, music, politics, technology, or feelings, we seek to leave you seeing the world anew. Radiolab adventures right on the edge of what we think we know, wherever you get podcasts. This is On the Media. I'm Bob Garfield. On Tuesday, the Justice Department announced new numbers around its immigration crackdown. Federal officials ordered more than 57,000 people to leave the U.S. from February to June this year. That's an increase of 31 percent over the same period last year. At the same time, those allowed to stay in the U.S. declined 21 percent. And yet, despite the extensive coverage of Trump's policies and statements on immigration, there is remarkably little coverage from inside immigration courtrooms. Those courts are supposed to be open to the public and the press, but does it work out that way? Uh, Very often it does not. Julia Preston is a journalist who's been reporting on immigration issues for more than 10 years at The Washington Post, New York Times, and now for the nonprofit Marshall Project. In general, the courts are very capricious in terms of what kinds of access they will allow. For example, an asylum hearing is supposed to be open to the press unless the judge or the parties decide that they want to close it. But in practice, very often it works the other way. It's very common for a reporter to go into an asylum hearing with the permission of the immigrant, of the attorney, and be dressed down and scolded by the judge just to be able to sit in the court. There are records of the proceedings, but not the sort we're accustomed to by watching legal procedurals on TV, it seems like quite a rudimentary system, not even a court reporter. The judge actually operates a recording machine. Yes, that's right. And we had an experience at the New York Times when I was working there a few years ago where an immigration judge issued a very important decision in a human rights case. This was a case where a former defense minister from El Salvador was being prosecuted for deportation based on human rights violations. And the judge ruled against him, and the decision, which was more than 100 pages long, was a very important decision for other courts to know how to interpret the statute in question, which was a relatively new law at that time. And we had to actually litigate to get the court system to publish a precedential ruling by a federal judge. So you had a victory in that case. You got a hold of this 100-page decision. Has it had any ramifications for subsequent reporters trying to get a hold of subsequent decisions or any documents out of the immigration court? Well, we did have a major victory, but whether or not it 
helped the process in general or encouraged the court system to be more open is not clear to me at all. Today, the Times is still trying to get additional records from those cases, and so it really is a big struggle. Is there any way for a reporter or any third party to find out what cases are being reviewed, where and when? Well, this is an example of how inconsistent this is. If you go into an immigration court, posted on the wall of the court are the names of all the people who have hearings that day in court. But if you try to, from a distance, find out about that docket, it's very difficult. The kind of docket, for example, the PACER system that you have in other federal courts where you can just type in a case number or a name and the entire case history will come up, none of that exists in the immigration courts. Do people disappear within? They do sometimes because ICE is responsible for maintaining the list of current detainees. And in some cases, ICE is not careful about maintaining those records on a daily basis. And if you're an immigrant who's in detention and your name disappears from the current list of people who are detained, very often that means that that person has been deported. So if that person has not been deported and the name is not showing up on the list, this can be very traumatic and difficult for the family. How about anonymized data about what kind of cases are being heard and how many? Do you know how big the network is? The immigration court system put out figures showing significant increases in the number of judicial decisions that led to deportations in the first six months of the Trump administration. But the figures were presented in such a confusing way that it really was very difficult to tell what exactly they were talking about. And they didn't offer any figures for cases that were resolved in the immigrants got to stay in the United States. In some ways, the data is even more tendentiously presented than it was under the last administration, which in my mind doesn't get any particular kudos for transparency either. Is there a case that is representative of the larger problems of trying to penetrate the secrecy and the bureaucracy of the immigration enforcement? I just did a lot of reporting in the immigration court in Charlotte, North Carolina, and the judges in that court have traditionally had a very low grant rate of asylum claims. So you have uh, people who are going before that court who are really frightened and have no confidence that their cases will be fairly heard in those courts. So the end result of this was that the great majority of the cases that I was looking at, which had to do with families from Central America, those cases were ending in deportation orders issued in absentia. People had so little confidence that in the end, a lot of people were just not turning up in court. Do you have difficulty generating sympathy for the personal issues of deportation? Are you a lonely voice there at the Marshall Project, or do you have a kind of constituency? I find that people are becoming a little bit numb to these cases, particularly the deportation cases. Many Americans are troubled by the fact that, in their mind, these people did not 
go the right way or didn't follow the legal route. And it's very difficult for Americans to understand that there is no legal route for a lot of these people. And what's happening in the immigration courts is part of that process. Whenever I do a story about a deportation, I try and get people to visualize what does it mean to be deported from the United States. You're there with your family. You have a home. A lot of these folks have been here for many years. And all of a sudden, from one day to another, it's like a living nightmare. You're in your home, your environment, and all of a sudden, you're in a country that in many cases you haven't lived in for years and years. It's just such a trauma and so disruptive and so painful for so many people. And so I do always try and make that point when I talk about these cases. Julia, many thanks. Thank you. Julia Preston is a journalist writing about immigration issues for the Marshall Project. Many thanks also to Jacqueline Stevens, director of the Northwestern Deportation Research Clinic, for bringing this issue to our attention. As we just heard, the immigration court bears little resemblance to any court system we're familiar with. There's no bailiff, no court reporter, and the judges preserve a record by themselves operating a digital audio recorder. I often compare myself to the guy behind the curtain in The Wizard of Oz because there are so many things that I am responsible for in the courtroom. Judge Dana Lee Marks is one of 330 federal immigration judges. Ordinarily, they are not permitted to speak to the media, but she can in her capacity as president of the National Association of Immigration Judges. There are a lot of the same formalities in immigration court as you expect to see in other courtrooms, but with these glaring differences in resources. And a consequent crisis in the pace of adjudication they're now stuck in a huge backlog of cases before U.S. Immigration Court, a backlog that keeps growing. With thousands of cases being delayed, in some cases, by nearly five years. But you also have a backlog of more than a half million cases, more than ever. Some of the immigrants who are currently detained aren't scheduled to have their hearings until after President Trump's current term is finished. And Judge Mark says the backlog has been years in the making. Well, we have had problems with backlog going back to the days when Alberto Gonzalez was the attorney general. The Under court. George W. Bush. Right. And he did a study of the courts where he recommended immediately adding 40 new immigration judges. But we were subjected to the government-wide hiring freeze and did not get those 40 additional judges for another four or five years, I believe it was. What has also happened is the complexity of cases continue to rise over time. The law and the judicial interpretations have only gotten more complicated. And unless the money is allocated promptly to hire more judges and to give us the resources we need like judicial law clerks. That's kind of what's gotten us in this situation. You're a judge in an immigration court, but you aren't really part of the judiciary, right? You work for the attorney general? That's correct. We are administrative judges, which means we are attorneys appointed by the attorney general to serve as judges. Now, you and your colleagues do everything they can to be independent, impartial arbiters of immigration law, but your bosses are not necessarily 
so immune from politics and policy. Does that create a conflict for the judges within their own organizations? We have long held that we need to be taken out of the Department of Justice to assure that our neutral adjudication is not intentionally or even unintentionally impacted by political considerations. The current administration, in deciding to detain everyone, detained cases always have a priority in our system because, obviously, it's an adverse impact on the liberty interest of the individual who's being held, but it also costs a lot of money to taxpayers. But when the administration chooses to detain virtually any non-citizen that they encounter rather than detaining people who are serious risks to the community because of past criminal records or whatever, what happens is that the judges are then forced to deal with those cases quickly and put those first on the list, meanwhile pushing back other cases that have been pending for perhaps two, three, four, even five years. If you are in the system, do you have the same protections that a defendant in a criminal or even civil case would have in an ordinary court? No. I often say that we do death penalty cases in a traffic court setting. The consequences to the individuals who come before us in immigration court can be life or death, or even if someone is not fearing that they'd be persecuted if they're returned to their homeland, it may be that they've lived in the United States for all of their life, as long as they can remember. And so sending them out of the United States with a deportation order is the equivalent of exile or banishment. And yet, because these are considered civil proceedings, not criminal proceedings, individuals are not entitled to have an attorney appointed for them. They can have an attorney represent them, but it's got to be at no expense to the government. Forty percent of the people who appear before us do not have attorneys representing them overall. But when you look only at cases where individuals are held in immigration custody and are detained, then you see that only 15 percent of individuals have attorneys to represent them. And it can make a huge difference in the outcome of their cases. Many of those who come before the court, maybe predictably, don't speak English as a first language and therefore face the complications of translation. Are mm -hmm. they provided assistance by the immigration court? People are provided foreign language interpreters if English is not their best language. Uh, I think last year it was over 280 different languages that were used in the immigration court proceedings. But it still is extremely challenging for individuals because they're not testifying in their first language. And depending on the quality of the interpretation, uh, the ability to have an interpreter appear in person, uh, at times they're only provided telephonically, some of our proceedings take place over televideo, all of those factors really impact the effectiveness of someone's testimony, and often the burden of proof resides with the respondent appearing in court. And if that individual is unrepresented, then obviously it's very difficult for them to know if the translation is accurate, if they're able to express themselves completely, if some kind of 
cultural assumption is making the effect of their testimony less strong. All right. Uh, just in case that slipped by unnoticed, you observed that the burden of proof, unlike criminal cases, is not on the prosecution, but on the respondent, sometimes to prove a negative. Where the burden of proof issue lands on the respondent himself or herself is when somebody is applying for some kind of relief from removal. They admit that they are not natives and citizens of the United States, but under the complicated immigration law, they believe there is a status they can qualify for some kind of benefit that would allow them to remain legally in the United States. And in those cases, that's probably 98% of the cases we have before us. The focus is on the remedy and the relief that someone might be able to get, not the fact that they are removable or not removable from the United States. One Ninth Circuit judge very succinctly put it that refugees don't come with a note from their dictator. I'm sure this is not an adjective that you have not heard before, but it all sounds kind of Kafka-esque to me. Let's just say that in addition to being president of the National Association of Immigration Judges, that you are the best immigration judge. Nobody more knowledgeable of the law, nobody fairer, nobody more impartial. Would you want to be in the position of appearing before you? It is clear that individuals appearing before immigration judges are often traumatized. I think, frankly, having been in this field for the 30 years that I have, it's clear that even if someone were an economic migrant, the atrocities they can suffer en route to the United States can be traumatic. So it, of course, would be optimal for every person appearing before an immigration judge to have access to a lawyer. The American public has to inform Congress as to whether they feel that is the way the law should be amended because there are legitimate policy differences amongst people in the American public as to whether or not that is an appropriate and legitimate expense. Judge Marks, thank you very much. Thank you. Judge Dana Lee Marks is president of the National Association of Immigration Judges. If you were an administration hell-bent on stopping illegal immigration through the southern border and you wanted to stereotype Latinos as violent, bad hombres, what a gift Mara Savatrucha, MS-13, would be. MS-13, of course, is one of the deadliest gangs in the world. We know that now because a lot of them are here. MS-13 seems to engage in violence for sport. Two of the victims, just 15 and 16-year-old girls, they were killed after being attacked with a machete and baseball bats. The brutal gang has taken root in many American cities, often mandating murder as a prerequisite for membership and terrorizing the surrounding community. That is why both Attorney General Jeff Sessions and President Trump have recently traveled to Long Island, a site of high-profile MS-13 violence, to raise the alarms. They go into jails, and then they're going back to their country, or they're going back to their country, period. One by one, we're liberating our American towns. Can you believe that I'm saying that? I'm talking about liberating our towns. It's like I'd see in a movie. 
Except MS-13, grotesque as it is, is not quite what the administration describes. It is not a highly centralized criminal organization. It is not a particular haven for undocumented immigrants. Most MS-13 members were born here. And it is no more treacherous than many other homegrown crime networks. Steve Dudley is co-director of Insight Crime and a senior research fellow at American University's Center for Latin American and Latino Studies. He says the gang's presence here dates back to the 1980s. The wars in Central America were raging. The residents of those countries were fleeing to Latino havens in the United States where they had relatives, places like Los Angeles. And this is where the MS-13 and many other Latino gangs were formed. Many were later arrested, in part because of their gang activities. And then when they were released from jail, they were sent back to their countries of origin, El Salvador, Honduras, Guatemala. They found areas that were war-torn. There were deposits of weapons left over from the Central American wars, fertile ground in which they could then create their own brand of MS-13, which in many ways is much worse than the brand of MS-13 that has emerged in the United States. Now, I can't help but notice you said the 80s, which is like 30 years ago. President Trump characterized MS-13 as the harvest of the Obama administration's failed immigration policies. Did the influx get worse under Obama? What we had during the Obama administration was an increase in undocumented migrants, in particular unaccompanied minors. Amidst this population, a number of them have been connected to gang activity in the United States since. This has fueled this narrative that this surge in unaccompanied minors is related to now this surge in violence in the United States. The most notable case happened in Long Island where there were a number of murders and there were 14 arrested. And about half of those arrested came during that surge period. But in that same area, they had taken in about 4,500 unaccompanied minors. You can look at it two ways. You can say six of 14 arrested were connected to that surge, or you could say six of 4,500, which isn't very much. So you can basically look at it through whatever lens you'd like to see it through. Jeff Sessions has made MS-13 the Justice Department's poster gang, I guess. But elsewhere in the Justice Department, every year they produce a gang threat assessment level And I wonder where MS-13 stands in comparison to other gang organizations. In their annual threat assessment, the U.S. Justice Department nearly always puts the MS-13 amongst the middle of the pack in terms of their threat level. Motorcycle gangs being considered the highest risk levels. The membership numbers of these biker gangs is significant, but perhaps more important when we consider the activities of the biker gangs is that they have much more sophisticated criminal operations. You will have a higher number of incidents related to biker gangs than you will the MS-13. But the way in which the violence, in particular the most recent violence, has manifested itself is what gives people shudders. 
The administration is pursuing a number of narratives along the way to fighting the immigration war. And one of them is that sanctuary cities, which give some sort of safe haven to undocumented immigrants, are a hotbed of MS-13 activity. Is there any data whatsoever to support that allegation? There is no data whatsoever to support this idea that sanctuary cities are a hotbed of criminal activity. And you have, in many cases, in these immigrant communities, lower levels of criminal activity. The idea that there is a need to go into these areas and, quote-unquote, clean them up is counterproductive over the long term. Because if you are going to root out the most violent of these criminal actors, which is what your goal should be, then you need to embrace these communities. This chilling effect is already having an impact. There are lower levels now of calls to the police related to domestic violence and other types of activities that are happening in these communities. And we've had law enforcement officers go in front of the United States legislature and talk openly about how this will continue to have an effect on their ability to locate, incarcerate, and or deport the most violent criminal actors. Probably like most Americans, I'm not going to lose a whole lot of sleep if the Justice Department is unduly focusing on MS-13. However, when President Trump spoke to a police group in Long Island, he actually encouraged police brutality, which is to say illegal activity against suspects. Like when you guys put somebody in the car and you're protecting their head, you know, the way you put their hand over. Like, don't hit their head and they've just killed somebody, don't hit their head. I said, you can take the hand away, okay? And history shows us that when you do apply this iron fist policy, as they like to call it in Central America, you can actually even strengthen the gang's hand. We have seen this in the Northern Triangle countries of Honduras, Guatemala, and El Salvador, where they have incarcerated in mass numbers of suspected gang members who then reorganize, recruit, strengthen their criminal economy all from the space of jail. And lest we think this is not happening in the United States, there is a case that I'm following now in which they chronicled one suspect who actually was later convicted of making upwards of 500 telephone calls and or texts from his California state prison. So for us to think that, oh, we're just going to incarcerate away this problem is really a misleading path, to say the least. All right. And this brings us back to where we began. MS-13 is trouble. And their violence is particularly gothic, and they need to be dealt with. How would you propose doing that? There's a reason that these kids are joining these gangs, because they do have a need to be part of a community in many respects. In some cases, certainly they are looking for protection from other gangs or from that gang itself, or protection from other forces on the outside, which could even include United States law enforcement. So what you need to do is present alternative spaces 
for them to find different types of communities, educational and job opportunities. But what we do not need is this mass vilification and increasing isolation of these communities and these youths within these communities. In that case, you are simply strengthening these gangs. Stephen, thank you. Thank you. Stephen Dudley is co-director of InsightCrime.org and a senior fellow at American University's Center for Latin American and Latino Studies. This is On the Media. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. This is On the Media. I'm Bob Garfield. This week, defamation in the news was back in the news. On Wednesday, suspended Fox News host Eric Bolling, who is under investigation for allegedly sending graphic pictures to female colleagues, is suing the journalist who first broke the story. Bolling is suing journalist Yashar Ali Hedayat for defamation and is seeking $50 million in damages. The sex and celebrity have a familiar ring and also the eye-popping demand of $50 million in the wake of last year's $140 million jury award to pro wrestling legend Hulk Hogan. Hogan, whose real name is Terry Bollea, is suing Gawker for $100 million over its release of a sex tape that shows the Hulk having sex with the former wife of radio shock jock Bubba the Love Sponge. A jury signs with Hulk Hogan, awarding him $115 million in his sex tape lawsuit against the website Gawker. The 14-year-old company went into bankruptcy after the judgment and was sold to Univision. Gawker the Huffington Post can't be thrilled to recall how quickly jurors voted to give a smarty pants New York media company its comeuppance. But here's the critical difference. As far as anyone knows, Eric Bowling is underwriting his own case. The Gawker case was bankrolled by a third party. Silicon Valley billionaire Peter Thiel in vengeance for Gawker's outing of him years earlier. He anonymously used Hogan's claim and the court system to wage his own private battle. In the documentary Nobody Speak, Trials of the Free Press, filmmaker Brian Knappenberger deconstructs the morality play that was the Gawker case, but then pulls back to observe a larger pattern, the use of big money to subvert, chill, manipulate, and punish a free press, from a Florida courtroom to the White House. I was really fascinated by what was happening in that courtroom, that even though it had this veneer of tabloid sensationalism, it's pretty clear there's some big-picture First Amendment versus privacy issues at stake. In the movie, you make the point that Teal's involvement was so sinister that people at Gawker were saying, there's something odd going on here, and Nick Denton, the principal behind this, just simply refused to believe that it could get that dark. We had a suspicion that it was, there was somebody. This has cost $13 million in legal fees for us so far. It suggests that there's another agenda. Some of the lawyers would occasionally raise this possibility with me. Nick refused to believe it because he didn't want to get wrapped up in any kind of conspiracy theories. From my perspective, it was a, a sense of, like, creeping dread. The 
you felt that there was something bigger going on here. The media was on trial. And eventually they start to believe that there is somebody. And then actually the New York Times breaks the story that that's true, that somebody was funding it. And then Forbes comes in and reveals that it's Peter Thiel. The lawyering that Peter Thiel bought was <laughs> top drawer. There's a point that we learn that they actually reduced their claims in the case for the specific reason of making sure that they could inflict the most pain not only on the corporation, Gawker Media, but on the founder and CEO, Nick Denton, and other editors at the publications. Yeah, absolutely. Bizarre series of events. Because, you know, you'd think that if Hogan was going for the biggest financial payoff, they would just throw everything at the wall and see what stuck. But what they realized was that dropping the account actually let the insurers off the hook for insuring Gawker should there be a big damage. So the full weight of the judgment would fall on Gawker and on the writers. That is something that you wouldn't do if you were Hogan's team and you wanted to get the most money, but it's something that you would do if you wanted to kill Gawker. The lawyers were able to persuade the jury that Hulk Hogan was macho and kind of superhuman, but poor Terry Bollea, the wrestler's actual name, was actually crushed emotionally and embarrassed by the tape. Yeah, this leads to really one of the most fascinating parts of the trial, I think, and that is since Gawker made the case that Hulk Hogan had talked about his sex life so graphically on Howard Stern and other shows, that this was uh, in some ways fair game. He's a public figure who brought this up himself. So the Hogan defense came up with something that they hadn't presented before, and that was to really draw a line between Terry Bollea, the private individual, and Hulk Hogan, the public person. And that distinction got very, very weird. I can attest. <laughs> it got very, very weird. And so uh, essentially it came down to a passage where he was bragging about his 10-inch penis. And in the courtroom, when he was asked about this, he said, well, Hulk Hogan is 10 inches, and Terry Bollea, well, not so much. And weirdly, that became a distinguishing uh, factor between this idea of a public persona and a personal one. And it's a very strange thing when you talk to people about this. I mean, you're, you're allowed what they call puffery, which is the promotion of a commercial. You're allowed to kind of um, exaggerate a little bit. It's weird as we're cutting this at the same time, you know, you have this rise of Donald Trump who you know, at the time was actually being accused of making all of these misogynistic remarks and, and all this stuff. And some of his surrogates basically stepped forward and said, those are things he said as a television personality. That's not how he really feels. So it was a similar kind of distinction being made. And I guess you're left wondering, as a journalist, what do you do with that? When is a public figure to be held accountable? For the moment, let's pull back from the details of litigation and to its significance, and that is a third party with endlessly deep pockets using a court case to seek his own private justice. I think we should be afraid that what Peter Thiel did could be a blueprint for other people. It does seem to have empowered a bunch of lawsuits, if you think about what we've seen just in the last couple of months. I mean, we've seen this lawsuit against John Oliver by this coal magnate. We've seen Sarah Palin using some of the Hogan lawyers in order to sue the New York Times. A story that we actually cut out of the film was the story of Mother Jones magazine and an Idaho billionaire, Frank Vandersloot, 
who tried to put them out of business. And ultimately, the readers of Mother Jones and others were able to raise enough money to actually push it back, and they won that case. But I do think that there's something new going on here in terms of this secretive funding of a case to silence a journalist. Now, I'm careful when I say that because, you know, very wealthy individuals and organizations and others have funded court cases before. But as I understand it, it used to be illegal to secretly fund court cases up until the late 50s. This goes back, I guess, all the way to common law. This is a legal term called champerty. And the reason why this was overturned is a pushback against the NAACP, who was backing cases in that time period about segregation. And this was a way of kind of thwarting their lawsuits like Brown versus Board of Education and others. So I think there's something very different here between NAACP or the ACLU or, you know, Greenpeace funding a lawsuit where you know that it's them and you know what their political position is. There's something different between that and, and what Teal did here, a single individual with an axe to grind that is not transparent to anybody. Now, this isn't taken up in your film, but is there any kind of appeal underway? No, there isn't an appeal, and uh, the cases at this point have actually settled. I want to talk about the last third of the movie, which moves into other examples of big money stifling independent reporting. You make the case that a scary pattern is forming. Let's start with Sheldon Adelson's secret takeover of the Las Vegas Review-Journal. What happened there? This is, I think, just a fascinating story where the reporters at the Las Vegas Review-Journal were informed that their paper had been purchased. So they asked, well, who is it and what are their expectations? And they were told not to worry about it. And they find out that the new mystery owner is Sheldon Adelson, who is probably the richest man in Nevada and is a very, very big Republican donor who has been in battles with the Review Journal for decades. Uh, he just doesn't like the paper and its reporters. And now he's the boss. Well, it's a, it's a pretty harrowing story when they figure this out. There's an amazing moment where they, they actually have the story ready and they're about to publish it and they're waiting around for a yes or no, you know, should we do this or not, from the murky upper management. And they don't get a yes or no or a maybe or anything. And at some point, finally they say, okay, let's just do this. And they do it without any kind of approval, knowing that it might, they might lose their jobs in the process. So a lot of them forced to resign. It takes off close to 100 reporters that may have said something that Sheldon Adelson doesn't like. There's one particularly poignant story about a guy who had been a burr in Adelson's saddle for some time who uh, wound up with a sick kid. Tell me about it. So John L. Smith, who's a really beloved uh, columnist in Las Vegas and in Nevada, he wrote a book called Sharks in the Desert, and Mr. Addison took exception to one of the passages in that book and sued him. And he got this news right as he was dealing with his daughter had cancer. And basically, an intermediary allegedly comes to John Smith and gives him an offer for a six-figure sum to handle some of his daughter's medical expenses on the condition that John L. Smith admits that he libeled him. And um, John L. Smith turns this down, and he ends up um, sticking with the case, and he, and he ends up winning his case. And the daughter? Daughter is okay. But he's no longer working at the Las Vegas Review-Journal. He does not. All right, this is America. Historically, rich people buy newspapers, and they mm -hmm. use them to flog their own 
politics, their own values, their own personal interests. There's nothing new about that. Why is the Adelson case so concerning? It's the secrecy. And it's the same thing that bothers me about the Teal example. That combined with the fact that we're in a kind of new period now in which inequality has gotten so staggering, it's been growing for decades. And you pair that with the fact that media in general has become so vulnerable, particularly independent watchdog journalism, uh, has lost a lot of its revenue and financial underpinnings to the internet and to others, while the uber-rich have gotten much, much richer and much more powerful. So that's the moment that I'm trying to describe here. There's a third element in Nobody Speak. After the Hogan trial, after Adelson and the Review Journal, you explore uh, another billionaire and his impact on free expression. Yeah, you may have heard about him. Yeah, tell me about Trump <laughs> and how this figures in. Well, he kind of inserted himself into my film. We're in the middle of making this film about Hulk Hogan Gawker and understanding Peter Thiel and this ability of billionaires to wage litigation against the press. And here's this highly litigious, thin-skinned billionaire who is gaining momentum, at least at that point in the Republican side. I mean, whipping his crowds at his rallies and speeches into a kind of frenzy and pointing at the media and the cameras in the background and saying, oh, you, these are scum, they're horrible people, and all of this stuff. Blacklisting some news organizations, Washington Post, BuzzFeed, and others from getting press credentials in the usual way. So these things seem to connect in a way that looked at a kind of bigger picture of media in America. The proper question for me to ask you now is how these three threads, Hogan, Adelson, and Trump, uh, woven together, presage something particularly bad. But actually, you address that very question in your film. You talk to uh, NYU professor Jay Rosen. I think the common thread among the Peter Thiel story, the Adelson story, and the Trump story is billionaires who are proclaiming, we are not vulnerable to truth. We are invulnerable to the facts. And it simply doesn't matter what you say, what the press does. We are more powerful than the truth. I found that statement by Jay to be very powerful. I do think that's essentially what we're facing now, this notion that the truth doesn't matter if you're rich enough. We see Sinclair Broadcasting, which apparently struck up a deal with Trump for quote-unquote fairer coverage buying up local TV stations across the country, apparently becoming the biggest owner of local TV in the United States. So you have this use of money to sort of consolidate and control the media, which controls public opinion. There's a lot of reasons to be concerned if you're a fan uh, or believe in the fourth estate. Yeah, so you know what? Somebody ought to do a radio show about that. <laughs> Something about the media would be good. Well, uh, I like your thinking. Brian, thank you very, very much. Thanks a lot for having me. I appreciate it. Brian Knappenberger is a documentary filmmaker who recently directed Nobody Speak, Trials of the Free Press. It's available on Netflix. That's it for this week's show. On the Media is produced by Alana Casanova-Burgess, Jesse Brenneman, Michael Lowinger, and Leia Fetter. We had more help from John Hanrahan and Isabella Kokami. And this week, we say goodbye to Jane Vaughn, who has interned ably and nobly. We wish her the best of luck. Our technical director is Jennifer Munson. 
Our engineers this week were Terrence Bernardo and Sam Baer. Jim Schachter is WNYC's vice president for news. Bassist composer Ben Allison wrote our theme. On the Media is a production of WNYC Studios. Brooke Gladstone will be back next week. I'm Bob Garfield. On the Media is supported by the Ford Foundation, the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, and the listeners of WNYC Radio.